Hello and welcome to the Rye Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to music, the movies, and the career of slide guitar master Rye Cooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Rye Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. This is episode three of the podcast. In episodes one and two, we've talked about Cooter's upbringing in 1950s Santa Monica, his beginnings as a guitarist at legendary L.A. folk club, The Ash Grove, and his year and a half as a member of the Rising Suns. Today, we're going to move on to the late 60s, a time when Cooter worked mainly as a session musician, a period full of exciting collaborations and an astonishing number of albums featuring Cooter. And of course, these were the years when Cooter played with the Rolling Stones. So here we go. The Rising Suns had neither a clear vision nor a common goal, and just as importantly, no commercial success. Columbia Records didn't even release their finished album, so it came as no surprise when the band broke up in the summer of 1966. Although only 19, Rye Cooter was old enough to be realistic about his chances as a musician. He didn't see a future for the Rising Suns, nor did he see himself joining another band for the time being. As he would later point out, even then he wasn't the type for the nomadic life of a rock band. Being in groups, he said, was a nightmare. It was like a mental institution. The touring life with its cliches of sex, drugs, and rock and roll never interested him. For him, it was really all about the music. That meant going to work, making music, and going home. As with any career, there were some people who provided essential startup help. Mentor number one was Rising Sun's producer Terry Melcher. After the band broke up, he told Cooter, This is no good, but you come back tomorrow. Melcher had tried his best with the Rising Suns. Cooter told John Tobler and Stuart Grundy for their 1983 book, The Guitar Greats. I got to be friendly with him because we got along. And then he called me to work on real sessions that he was doing with other artists like Paul Revere and the Raiders. And that was great. Terry had the idea, since folk rock was happening, to integrate certain instruments that hadn't been tried before into a normal Hollywood rock session band, and he was very smart about that. The question was how you made the leap from some sort of folk club with your dulcimer into the rock and roll studio, and what you did with mandolins and things. But that was the fun of it then, trying to make all that up and make it work. Nobody knew what to do. He said, play something. So I played. This is Get It On from the album Midnight Ride by Paul Revere and the Raiders. There are no credits on the album, but it is safe to say that Cooter plays bottleneck on this track. The record was released by Columbia in May 1966, four months before the Rising Suns broke up. So it's quite likely that Cooter started the session work while he was still with the Rising Suns. Paul Revere and the Raiders, originally formed in the early 60s by Paul Revere and Mark Lindsay, were a logical choice. They may not have been Melcher's creation, but as their producer, he had given the band a whole new style in 1965. He got them, as AllMusic.com put it, to create music that was a mix of fast-paced, guitar and vocal-dominated Beach Boys-style rock and roll and also the more intense and intimidating brand of R&B produced by the Rolling Stones. Surpassed only by the Beatles and the Stones, they were for a time one of the biggest bands in the U.S. In later years, however, they were all but forgotten, until Quentin Tarantino helped them achieve posthumous fame in 2019. In his film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Raiders are featured with no less than three songs. Unable to read music, 
Cooter understandably found studio work intimidating at first. Everything felt so slick and polished, and everyone was so right on all the time. Some musicians even laughed at him for not knowing what a diminished chord was. But once he'd learned the process and his role, he realized that there was no need to be intimidated. In fact, he discovered a whole new way of making music in the studio. In 2005, he told Word magazine, I thought, my God, what's going on here? This is interesting. Because records are it, as far as I'm concerned. This is what you want to learn how to do. Pay attention and learn, and get paid for it. Fantastic. Cooter enjoyed the concentration, the musicians, the act of creation. The doors closed, nobody came in, and it was all about the music. By 1967, Paul Revere and the Raiders had followed the Beach Boys' lead and morphed into two separate entities, the live performing band, ably led by Revere himself, and the studio band, consisting of lead singer Mark Lindsay, producer Terry Melcher, and countless session musicians. The live band still appeared every weekday on ABC's afternoon TV show where the action is but only to lip-sync to the tracks Lindsay and Melcher had created. Ups and Downs, from the album Revolution, was the last single supposedly featuring the classic Where the Action Is lineup. Reviewer Philip A. Cohen suggests that the studio lineup may have included some combination of Lindsay, Melcher, and Levin, plus Stallworks, Ry Cooter, Van Dyke Parks, Hal Blaine, Jim Gordon, and Jerry Cole. Again, there's no credit on the album, but it's more than likely that this is Cooter's bottleneck guitar. Two years later, Cooter returned to a Raiders recording session, this time for the album Hard and Heavy. He is credited on the album with thanks to our friends. He appears on several tracks, including Right on My Shoulder and Where You Going Girl. The year 1967 was marked by the collaboration with painter, sculptor, and singer-songwriter Don Van Vliet, better known as Captain Beefart. Born in 1941, he was a childhood friend of Frank Zappa and, to put it mildly, a real eccentric. He had joined the Magic Band in 1964 and started calling himself Captain Beefart. Cooter had actually met him for the first time in 1965 at the fourth annual Teenage Fair in Los Angeles. As we learned in episode two, it was there that the Rising Suns had performed together for the first time doing a promo job for McCabe's Guitar Shop. Beefheart had done the same thing for someone else. He heard Cooter and Taj Mahal playing, came over and introduced himself. Cooter thought he was a funny guy and went to see him play. Two years later, Cooter got a call from Robert Krasno, the founder of the Buddha Records label. Krasno was trying to produce an album that had been deemed too negative by another label and dropped. Cooter was to help him bring order to the rather chaotic project. In a 1983 radio interview, Cooter recalled, Beefheart used to come around because he was having trouble with his guitar player at the time. He was suffering from nervous strain brought about by Captain Beefheart. Beefheart had a record deal with Buddha Records and needed a little bit of organizational assistance. He's an imposing figure and very funny. I started messing around with him at his invitation only to find out that it was like a hornet's nest. But he had great musical ideas. That was kind of an interesting event. At the time, Beefheart was living in the desert. He was unhappy with the performances of the Magic Band's guitarist Dub Moon and bassist Jerry Handley. He even toyed with the idea of replacing Moon with Cooter. Cooter would drive out to rehearse with the band. In an interview for the BBC, he recalled the testy atmosphere of the rehearsals. I said, look, I'm just here. Let's see what you're doing. Beefheart. Well, I'll tell you what we're doing and what we're not doing. First thing is, this goddamn guy here points to Doug Moon. Get out of here, Doug. You're just no use to us. Go away and let us do this. Another damn thing I should tell you. 
This bass player here, Jerry, he doesn't remember the parts half of the time. I taught him the music. I thought, whoa, one thing at a time. The next thing, Doug came out with a loaded crossbow in his hand, screaming, don't nobody move. It was a loaded machine crossbow. I got down behind the amplifier. I didn't want a machine crossbow arrow coming at me. Beefheart screamed. Ah, get that fucking thing out of here. Go back to your room. He said, okay. And off he went. I around all day with the moon sticking in my eye. Safe as milk opens with sure nothing yes I do, a gripping blues number that one reviewer commented could have come straight from a Howlin' Wolf record. Clearly inspired by the Delta Blues, its stylistic clarity leads the listener down the wrong path. Because the album is full of surprises and crazy turns. All in all, it tends towards pop psychedelia. It was recorded at a time when pop and rock music were on the verge of splitting apart. Safe as Milk tries to avoid the either-or choice and to produce something distinctive without slipping into self-conscious avant-gardism. Cooter. Somehow the concept seemed to be, you take the raw blues elements from John Lee Hooker or Howlin' Wolf down to their purest element, which is just sound. A grunt, maybe. And something abstract. And then you take your John Coltrane, crazy time signature free jazz Ornette Coleman thing, and sort of tie them together. And this is what you come up with. Well, it's a great idea. Electricity, clearly the highlight of the album and the reason for the original production disputes. Critic Piero Scaruffi analyzes it perfectly. Another apparently comical piece, Electricity, is in fact one of the most reckless harmonic experiments in the career of Van Vliet, as Electricity spins and spits its perverse nursery rhyme, two teetering, grinding blues guitars, Cooter and Alex St. Clair, tear it to pieces, while a languid and grotesque theremin muse in the background, and the rhythm section picks out a hobbling quadrille. John French's rhythm, syncopated and muted, is a masterpiece within a masterpiece. The work is structured according to a supernatural order, but leaves the impression of chaotic witticism. That which the magic band crushes is not the harmony, but the classic concept of song. I got up this morning! Then there is Grown So Ugly, arranged by Cooter. It's a nice mix of blues and rock, but a bit expressionless. According to critic Alastair Dixon, it's another oddity on the album and can come across as something of an interloper. The production really lets this track down, with moderate stereo imaging and a lack of vocal presence. With the album in the can, Krasno wanted to take the magic band to the Monterey Pop Festival in a big way. Again, he asked Cooter for help to perform with Beefheart to ensure the necessary professionalism. Together with the rest of the band, he flew to San Francisco for a warm-up concert a week before Monterey. It was the so-called Fantasy Fair and Magic Mountain Music Festival, which took place on the 10th and 11th of June in Marin County, California. The lineup wasn't as impressive as Monterey's, but there were still a number of big acts including The Doors, Canned Heat, Jefferson Airplane, and The Birds. 20,000 tickets were sold, but reportedly 40,000 people attended the two-day event. Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band were scheduled to play on day two. It was hot. There were dogs and people playing frisbee. The summer of love was in full swing. Cooter later said, It was an acid trip. 
funky Bay Area acid bands making noise, and I thought we didn't belong there. As the band began to play electricity, Beefheart suddenly froze, straightened his tie, then walked off the ten-foot stage, and depending on the source, landed with his face in the grass or on manager Bob Krasno. He later claimed to have seen a girl in the audience turn into a fish, with bubbles coming out of her mouth. Cooter. And we continued on instrumentally. Nobody cared. Everyone was out anyway. The audience was there for a good time. They didn't give a shit. I got in the rental car, drove back to the town, got on the plane, and came home. That was it. Cooter had obviously had enough of Beefheart's LSD-fueled excesses. He told John Tobler and Stuart Grundy. Krasno was mad at me. And I was mad because I was embarrassed. I'd anticipated something like this, but you never know. The next week, back in Los Angeles, I told Krasno that he could forget Monterey Pop because there was no way a situation like that could be controlled, and it would be awful. And he lay there, fanning himself on his couch, saying how could I do this to him? And finally I said, I quit, and I'm walking away from this because it's too much for me. It comes as no surprise that Beefheart's magic band didn't perform at Monterey. What a shame, because they would have been on the same stage as the likes of Eric Burden and the Animals, Simon and Garfunkel, Canned Heat, Otis Redding, The Who, Grateful Dead, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, The Mamas and the Papas, The Birds and Jefferson Airplane, among others. What a lineup. Safe as Milk was released by Buddha Records that same month, but the album didn't attract much attention. It failed to enter the top 100 charts in either the US or UK, but it wasn't a failure for Cooter though, he said in 1983. I still think that Safe as Milk is a good record. What's really good there is the master tape. The album was mixed badly in those days. A hopeless, stupid, terrible thing was done, which was to take it into a cheap studio to save some money. You know, save a dime and blow it. The master tape of that album is utterly fantastic. They should take it to Japan and redo it. What a great sound. In 1999, Muda Records, now owned by Sony, finally fulfilled Cooter's wish and remastered the album on CD. They even added seven bonus tracks taken from Beefheart's unreleased follow-up album. After the Monterey Pop fiasco, it again was time for Cooter to move on. At this point, mentor number two came into play, Jack Nitsche. He was an arranger who worked closely with Terry Melcher. Over the next few years, he would provide Cooter with plenty of work. Bernard Alfred Nitsche, born in Chicago, Illinois in 1937, had moved to Los Angeles in 1955 to pursue a career as a jazz saxophonist. He met Sonny Bono, then head of A&R at Specialty Records, who hired him as a music copyist. Together, they wrote needles and pins for Jackie DeShannon, later an international hit for the searchers. In the early 60s, Nietzsche established his reputation as an arranger through his association with Phil Spector, most notably Spector's famous Wall of Sound. After befriending the Rolling Stones in 1964, Nietzsche began to put his stamp on their work as well, playing keyboards and percussion on their early recordings. From there, he went on to work with Tim Buckley, Doris Day, Marion Faithful, The Birds, The Monkees, Buffalo Springfield, and later Neil Young. Ry Cooter had first met Nitsche while working for Terry Melcher. Nitsche had a good eye for the business and knew how to organize. He began to call Cooter whenever he could use him as a guitarist or mandolin player. For Cooter, it was all a great education. Nitsche also had a taste for world music. He liked the textures and sounds of instruments that Cooter had never seen before. For instance, exotic drums like the tabla, a pair of twin hand drums, and a whole range of other instruments beyond bass drums, snare drums, and electric guitars. During the sessions, Cooter met a lot of experienced musicians, like Milt Holland, who'd been a swing drummer in the 20s. He learned a lot from them.
But before Cooter threw himself into the session music business, he first followed the advice of his parents. They had asked him, as parents usually do, to get a decent education first. So he enrolled at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, a prestigious university whose alumni include Apple founder Steve Jobs, Wikipedia founder Larry Sander, radio host Barry Hansen, also known as Dr. Demento, and actress Hope Lange. But as it soon turned out, this was a rather half-hearted move for Cooter. He kept getting calls to return to Los Angeles to work on various records. And of course, Cooter would answer the music industry's call. In 1999, he told Esquire magazine, I like the trees. I like nature. I liked being up in Portland. But once you've recorded with Captain Beefheart and looked down the barrel of a crossbow, you might get a little bored in college. So he missed so much school that his advisor called him in to explain the absences. Cooter described what it was like to play sessions. The counselor asked, do you get paid? Cooter said, last time I played about a week and made $5,000. The counselor collected himself and said, what are you doing here? And Cooter said, well, it was kind of my parents' idea. And so after just one semester, Cooter's academic career came to an end. In 1968, it was usually Jack Nitschi who offered Cooter well-paid session work. Cooter was one of the guitarists on As We Go Along, a lovely monkey's tune from their soundtrack album for the film Head. It's one of the many Cooter contributions from this period that are almost impossible to spot. Solid guitar work in the service of the cause, so to speak. Cooter also worked with Nitschi as producer and arranger on Neil Young's self-titled 1968 album. They also worked on the film Candy, but their score was rejected. In a later interview, he said that Nitschi used some of the recordings for the soundtrack to performance, but more on that in a minute. At this time, Cooter began to work regularly in the studio. In 1968 and 69 alone, he worked on at least 20 albums or singles. In many cases, he wasn't even credited on the sleeve, which later led to much speculation among completists about his involvement. But even when his participation was officially confirmed, it didn't mean that he could be identified by the listener. This is true of records such as the psychedelic Tanyet by a band called the Saley People, Mark Levine's Pilgrim's Progress, the Anders and Poncha album, or Harper's Bazaar 4. For Cooter, Working on many of these albums was almost like a regular office job. As he told an interviewer in 1983, I just don't remember stuff. It's a long time ago, you know. Frankly, I'm very of the moment. You go in and you play, you leave, and by the next day you don't remember it. There's no reason to, see, because then you're doing another one. Unless something weird took place, I was in a studio one night, and someone ran in from next door and said, Jim Morrison is wrecking the studio. We all ran in, and the guy was throwing microphones around. I remember that. But even in those early years, the Cooter style can be heard in many of his contributions. This is Strutton Down Main Street, track one on the album Border Town by a band called Fusion. It's a fairly obscure album, but well worth hearing. Cooter's friend, Rising Suns member Gary Marker, who had also worked extensively with Captain Beefheart, formed the group. He produced the album and co-wrote nine of the ten tracks with vocalist Rick Luther. Cooter's excellent slide guitar can be heard on no less than seven tracks. And of course, there were other collaborations with the best of friends. Ha, ha, ha. Look here, baby. It's a chain in the ocean, chain in the deep blue sea. 
This is Everybody's Got to Change Sometime from Taj Mahal's eponymous debut album. It has Cooter's signature guitar all over it. And then there's Arlo Guthrie, son of folk legend Woody Guthrie. In the years that followed, Cooter contributed to several of his albums. We will be covering Mahal and Guthrie in depth in special episodes for our Patreon subscribers. In fact, the Taj Mahal podcast is already available, so if you want to listen to it, head on over to our Patreon page and become a member. And so we finally enter the realm of the Rolling Stones. In 1968 and 1969, Ry Cooter contributed to several of their albums and side projects. Some of this is shrouded in myth and controversy, and some questions will probably never be fully answered, but we will do our best to shed some light. It's pretty safe to say that Cooter only participated in a relatively small number of sessions. Or as Keith Richards put it in his memoir, he was only there for a brief moment, and then he was gone again. Nevertheless, it took many years before all his contributions were finally released. But let's take it one step at a time. In late 1967, the Stones released their album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request to Mixed Reviews. It was soon considered a pretentious, psychedelic album that sounded too much like the Beatles. The Stones had clearly strayed too far from their blues roots. At the time, it was the first and only album the band had produced themselves. The production came in for harsh criticism, so they turned to producer Jimmy Miller for their subsequent albums. It was a turning point for the Stones. In 1968, they would return to the hard-driving blues that had made them famous early in their career. Beggar's Banquet, the Stones' next album, would come to be regarded as one of their landmark achievements. There were rumors that Cooter was present during the recording sessions in the spring of 1968. These were probably based on an interview that producer Glenn Johns gave to journalists John Tobler and Stuart Grundy, later published in a 1982 BBC book. In this interview, he said, Having Rye Cooter brought over to work on that record was a completely new experience for me. I never heard anybody play guitar like that in my life, and it really turned my head around. He was, and still is, amazing. Correct assessment, but wrong album, because shortly afterwards in the same interview, Johns claims that during the Beggar's Banquet sessions, the album Jamming with Edward was created. But this definitely wasn't the case until a year later, when the Stones produced Let It Bleed. Also, Cooter's mentor at the time, Jack Mitchie, wasn't involved with the album at all. Mick Jagger must have been very busy in the spring of 1968, because he'd also starred in a movie a British crime drama called Performance, also starring James Fox and Anita Pallenberg. Most of the filming took place in London over the course of 1968. The production story was quite complicated, on two levels at once. First of all, the music. Originally, the Stones were supposed to write the soundtrack, but due to the complicated nature of the various relationships between the band members on and off screen, they never did. It is said that Keith Richards suspected that the sex scenes in the movie between his girlfriend Anita Pallenberg and Mick Jagger didn't involve much in the way of acting. He took to sitting in his car outside the house where the movie was shot, spending his days in poisonous brooding. Either way, the internal climate of the band was clearly disturbed. When Jagger recorded the song Memo from Turner for the movie at the end of the year, he preferred to be accompanied by the band Traffic, but their version did not make it into the movie either. That brings us to the second complication. Apparently, Warner Brothers, the production company, had expected a Rolling Stones equivalent to Richard Lester's Beatles movies, so they were rather shocked after the first screening. What they got was a dark experiment full of nudity, sex, and violence. Even worse, Mick Jagger didn't show up for the first hour of the movie. At a loss for what to do, Warner shelved the movie for almost two years and demanded extensive recuts but more about that in a moment. Meanwhile, the Rolling Stones began production on their next album to be called Let It Bleed. 
The sessions took place during the first half of 1969 at Olympic Studios in London. It was a time of transition for the Stones. Brian Jones was no longer a full member of the band and Mick Taylor had not yet been named as his successor. This is where Ry Cooter came in. According to some sources, he was brought in by producer Glenn Johns to fill the void. According to Paul Trinka's book on Brian Jones, it was Mick Jagger and Keith Richards who wanted Cooter to play mandolin and slide guitar on some of their new songs. His first assignment was to play guitar on a song from the Beggar's Banquet Sessions, Sister Morphine, sung by Marion Faithful, Jagger's girlfriend at the time. Sister Morphine was released as a B-side single in the UK in early 1969, but was soon withdrawn by Decca Records because of the drug reference in the title. It originated as a tune that Jagger kept strumming while in London with Faithful. She got fed up with the wordless song and wrote some lyrics. She told Mojo Magazine, I wrote this story about a man who'd had an accident. He's dying and in terrible pain, and all he wants is for the nurse to bring him another shot. It's definitely a kind of junkie song, except that neither Mick nor I knew much about junkies back then. The Stones also recorded the song during the production of Let It Bleed, again with Ry Cooter on guitar. But it was released much later, in 1971, on the album Sticky Fingers. The Stones version is significantly more powerful and punchy, where Faithful's voice emphasizes the powerlessness, Jagger rather accentuates anger at the injustice of fate. Cooter's guitar is much more dominant, corresponding perfectly with Jagger's vocals. By the way, the Stones didn't give Faithful an official songwriting credit on Sticky Fingers. She had to take legal steps to get the credit back. It took no less than 20 years. There has been much speculation about what happened with Cooter during the recording of Let It Bleed. In a 2003 article, Robert Sandel of the Sunday Times described the atmosphere as follows. By late 1968, Brian Jones was a drug-addled mess and Mick and Keith weren't talking after Jagger got too close to his co-star in performance, Anita Pallenberg, who was Richards's girlfriend. Cooter noticed that in the studio nobody was friendly and everybody acted funny, but he soldiered on trading blues licks with Keith and standing in for him during his unofficial boycott of the performance soundtrack. Due to his drug use and mental health problems, Brian Jones had only contributed sporadically to the Stones since the release of Beggar's Banquet. He had been present during the Let It Bleed recordings but had mostly remained in the background, lying on his stomach in the corner, reading articles on botany or other things. There were rumors that Cooter might replace Jones as a band member, but nothing ever came of it. Instead, Cooter jammed a lot with the Stones. He showed Keith Richards some tricks, maybe even the open G tuning favored by John Lee Hooker. But let's not forget that Richards probably already knew about this playing technique. After all, he had seen Cooter playing with the Rising Suns in 1965, and as Paul Trinka noted, he might have seen Brian Jones practicing the open G tuning too. Anyway, Richards once said, I took Rye Cooter for everything I could get. Here's a scene described in a major Cooter profile Alec Wilkinson wrote for Esquire magazine in 1999, titled Who Put the Honky Tonk in Honky Tonk Women. One day he was playing guitar, goofing around, clicking this and popping that, and Mick Jagger came dancing over and said, Oh, that's very interesting. What you're playing? How do you do that? You tune the E strings down to a D, and you put your fingers there, oh I see, and you pull them off quickly like that, Yes, that's very good. And Cooter showed him the whole thing. He was young. He didn't know that sometimes you got to keep your stuff indoors. And the next thing he knew, the Rolling Stones were picking up royalties for honky-tonk women, which sounds precisely like a song arranged by Ry Cooter 
and absolutely nothing like any other song ever arranged in 30 years by the Rolling Stones. This guitar definitely sounds like something Ry Cooter could have come up with. He claimed co-authorship of the catchy slide riff when Honky Tonk Women was released as a non-album single in July of 1969, one day after the death of Brian Jones. The song became a number one hit in both the US and the UK. In fact, it remains the band's last single to reach number one in its home country. In the end, the dispute was settled. In a 1970 interview, Cooter told Jim Henderson that he had no hard feelings about it. I did a lot of guitar work that they didn't use for tracks. They took the guitar work that I did, made it into songs, and then recorded it. So you might say that a lot of the guitar work on Let It Bleed is influenced by the kind of thing that I was laying down when I got there, and they weren't really into much of anything. So we sat around and jammed, and they got ideas, cause they're like me. I sponge stuff up, hear a new thing and incorporate it into what they were doing. Honky Tonk Women is a good example of that. I don't mind saying that now because it is settled, just the way things work out. In later years he added, perhaps jokingly, that it wasn't even his riff, but John Lee Hooker's. Then he largely stopped talking about it. In one of the many internet forums discussing the case, someone speculated that Cooter had been compensated warned off by lawyers, or just felt it was water under the bridge. When Let It Bleed was finally released in November 1969, Cooter's influence could be felt in many ways. His guitar wasn't heard, but his blues mentality had rubbed off heavily on Richard's playing. Cooter explained that the Stones did not use his recordings, but played them themselves. In the music industry, this practice is called a sponge job. It involves re-recording the existing track of an instrument. The first recording is erased, wiped away, and then replaced with a second. Cooter received credit for playing mandolin on Love in Vain, so we get to enjoy a duet of Cooter mandolin and Richard's slide guitar, with Richard's basically playing like Cooter. Love in Vain is a cover of a Robert Johnson masterpiece from the 1930s. The Stones version stays respectfully close to the original, a fact that undoubtedly suited Cooter very well. The Stones didn't tinker much with Johnson's doleful tale of being left behind by a lover at a train station, wrote Richie Unterberger of AllMusic.com. What they did do was make it more accessible to a modern and usually white audience, simply by virtue of much clearer recording technology. Jagger's drawling vocals, which were easier for modern ears to comprehend than the ones heard on Johnson's 78s, and some modest blues rock backing to take it from the strictly acoustic territory, highlighted by Keith Richards' electric slide guitar. Now back to performance. In 1969, the movie was still awaiting its release. Since it was a Warner Brothers production, it made sense that the studio would turn to one of their leading contributors to save the soundtrack, Jack Nitsche. As Cooter explained, Nitsche went through an important door, which involved pop music in film, and was a really good arranger with interesting compositional abilities. In those days, movie people looked askance at the idea of pop music in films. It was all wrong as far as film theory was concerned, but Nitsche got the job. The idea of world music had occurred to him. Milt Holland could play the table. Buffy St. Marie came in with her mouth bow. Some great people who could play some crazy things. Nietzsche had a really good idea there. The recordings were made in Los Angeles at Western Studios in early 1970. Nietzsche's studio band consisted primarily of three people. Singer-songwriter Randy Newman, who played piano and sang the title song. Rye Cooter, who played slide guitar 
and Russ Teitelman on rhythm guitar. Nietzsche used all sorts of exotic instrumentation, like the tambora or the vena. Lowell George of Little Feet made some crazy noise. <laughs> Mick Jagger wasn't even present during the sessions. Neither Jagger nor Nitschie Like Traffic's already mentioned recording of the song Memo from Turner. So they replaced the track, playing along with Jagger's existing vocals and a click track. Sammy's when the black man there drew his knife. Oh, you drowned that Julian Rampton as he watched his sleeveless shirt. You know, that Spanish-speaking gentleman... The result is a powerful song carried by Cooter's captivating slide guitar riff. According to an allmusic.com review, The song has a lazy but funky mid-tempo blues rock feel and excellent slide guitar. Jagger puts on his best drawling speak-sing voice for the lyrics spinning bizarre mini snapshots of decadent, cruel gangster behavior. The music isn't grim, though. It's more in a sly, ironic, happy-go-lucky vein. In the film, Jagger lip-syncs to the song while fantasizing about being a gangster. The scene is considered by some to be the early equivalent of a music video. In any case, it adds to the artificiality of the movie. The various musical parts were recorded by Cooter on slide guitar, Russ Teitelman on guitar, Randy Newman on piano, Jerry Sheff on bass, and Gene Parsons on drums. Memo from Turner was later released as Jagger's first solo single. There are at least two other versions of this song. But all in all, the largely improvised recordings were not Cooter's greatest pleasure. He reported, I used to go home from these sessions with a splitting headache, thinking, what's the world coming to? This is about the nastiest looking thing I've ever seen this film. It scared me. It made me ill. After extensive re-editing, the movie was finally released in August 1970. It's still a difficult, feverish film full of enigmatic scenes, wild zooms and radical editing. Co-directed by Donald Camel and Nicholas Rogue, it's a gritty product of the drug-fueled, swinging 60s. It was no success with audiences or critics, but in later years it achieved cult status and is now considered an iconic gangster film of the 70s. It tells the story of a tough London mobster who finds refuge in the hippie hideaway of a reclusive rock star. In a strange way, the identities of the two men begin to dissolve, until the whole thing ends in a brutal act of violence. The trailer features two of Cooter's bluesy bottleneck guitar tracks. Get Away in Powell Square, yet another variation on Dark was the Night. This is a film about madness. No soap on the gentleman's collar. Madness and sanity. Like Randy Newman, who would work with Cooter on and off for many years, Russ Teitelman would become an important figure in Cooter's career. Teitelman was born in Los Angeles in 1944. He began his musical career in the 60s as a rhythm guitarist in the house band of a television show. He later studied sitar for a year with Ravi Shankar and worked as a producer, songwriter, or musician with many of the rock stars of the 60s and 70s. He also played guitar on a track on Captain Beefheart's Safe as Milk. And he also had a sister, photographer Susan Teitelman. Both were childhood friends of Phil Spector. In an interview with Spectropop, Teitelman said, My sister Susan and Rye had met by then, but they weren't married yet. Four years on, I would co-produce Rye's Paradise and Lunch album and co-write Tattler with him, so performance was the beginning of a lot of associations. Cooter and Susan Teitelman got married in October of 1970. Susan would be responsible for most of the photography on Cooter's album covers. It was to be a long and happy marriage, free of scandal and public gossip. Moreover, the couple have always managed to keep their personal lives private. In 1978, their only son Joachim was born, 
who later became a drummer and percussionist, often working with his father. Another byproduct of the Let It Bleed sessions at London's Olympic Studio was the album Jamming with Edward. One day in April 1969, Keith Richards had to go home because Anita Pallenberg was ill. Mick Jagger, Charlie Watts, Bill Wyman, Rye Cooter and longtime Stone sideman Nicky Hopkins remained in the studio. As Hopkins told Rolling Stone magazine in 1971, We thought he'd be back in an hour or two and we started playing. Rye Cooter was there and it was just jamming. They put the whole lot down on tapes. It was shelved until the Stones got their own label. It was simply a neat thing to do. It's not really a Stones record. Mick doesn't sing very much on it. The name came from some banter between Brian Jones and myself. He was playing bass, for some reason I can't remember, and I was at the other end of the studios playing piano. He called over, give me an E, Nicky, but I couldn't hear, so he shouted, give me an E for Edward. The whole thing developed from there. I drew the front page of a comic that looks like the Beano. We use it on the album. Other sources said that Richards left because of a disagreement with producer Glenn Johns, who had brought in Cooter to shore up the Rolling Stones sound. But Johns later also attributed Richards' absence to a phone call from Pallenberg. He said, Richards went, but the rest of us decided to stay around, and they just jammed. Rye played guitar, Mick Jagger harmonica, and Nicky piano, and it was just a joke really, just a laugh. I recorded it and they played it, and then, I don't know how long later, we dubbed the tapes out, I mixed it, and they stuck it out on album. It didn't really warrant releasing really, but it was okay, a bit of fun, and there's some good playing on it. According to Hopkins, about half of the jam made it onto the record. It was released almost three years after the recording, in early January 1972. Speaking to the New Musical Express in December of that same year, Cooter said he'd forgotten all about it and that the album didn't work musically. Still, he got a nice fat royalty check because jamming with Edward actually made it into the top 40, peaking at number 33 in the weeks after its release. The album has six tracks. A later CD contains an additional bonus track. Almost none of them are what you would call a real song. In fact, it is a pure jam, full of breaks and incompleteness, but also full of interesting approaches and brilliant passages. Track 1, The Boot or Stomp, starts with an incomprehensible mumbling Jagger and a hard cut into a driving blues. Only at the beginning does Jagger sing briefly, followed by a repetitive theme without much variation or clear purpose. Track number two is called It Hurts Me Too, and is kicked off by a wonderful cooter slide improvisation that culminates in what is clearly the album's highlight. A languid blues based on a much-played standard, most famously by Elmore James in the 50s. a good example of the kind of music that both Cooter and the Stones adored. It is followed by Edwards' Thrumb Up, a piano-heavy, eight-minute monstrosity with little to no guitar. It's even topped in length by Blow with Rye, an 11-minute jam built around a crunchy slide riff. It sounds good, but like the whole album, it has nowhere to go.
The album ends with two more piano pieces, an interlude and Highland Fling, where Nicky Hopkins can really let loose. All in all, jamming with Edward is a minor work, a beautiful document of the joy of playing, but also a bit annoying. It has always had its supporters among both Stones and Cooter fans, but critics have not been particularly fond of it. Allmusic.com said, The songs never get beyond giving the listener the impression they were thrown together during a drunken night's rehearsals. In that sense, the album is a bit of a letdown. Though any Stones fan would surely clamor for lost material from the band's golden age, jamming with Edward, instead, makes one wish it had never been released. One final edition remains. The very last output of Ry Cooter's Let It Bleed sessions finally appeared on the Rolling Stones 1975 compilation album Metamorphosis. It's a song called Downtown Susie, written by Bill Wyman with Cooter on slide guitar. It's a poppy, only semi-serious song that's about halfway between Let It Bleed and Jamming with Edward, a good time booty with a dash of acoustic blues. And that brings us to the end of episode three of the Rye Cooter story. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, or visit our website. As usual, you'll find the links in the show notes. If you want to support the podcast, then please subscribe and leave a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing and want to recognize our work, then please head over to Patreon and become a member. Membership comes with all sorts of benefits. Our next episode is just around the corner. We really look forward to it, because finally we get to talk about Cooter's first solo album. And that means that for the first time we're really going to dig deep into the songs and analyze them thoroughly. That's gonna be fun. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. Yeah.